So, good evening again. So, did anybody hear about the Wisdom 2.0 conference? Anybody? One or two? So, it was a conference happening down in um, Silicon Valley this weekend, organized by a, a friend of mine, Soren Gronhammer, who has practiced here and elsewhere. And it was a bringing together of um, people from the technology world, mostly people from Google, Facebook, Twitter, Senge, eBay, and people from the mindfulness meditation world. And uh, the intention of the conference was how do these worlds interface, interact, support each other, work together, work against each other. Um, and so there was a lot of speakers from, diff from both from all those, all those companies, and people like John Kabat-Zinn and Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg and various other teachers were there. And it was really an open exploration of um, how we bring, how we use this technology that's now an integral part of our lives how we stay sane in the face of being often swamped by technology, and how we can use it to actually achieve more wholesome ends than is currently happening. So how can we put it to use in a way that's really enhancing human life, human well-being, as opposed to feeling like it's uh, a curse or a burden or uh, you know, something that feels overwhelming. Anybody here feel overwhelmed by email, phone calls, messages, stuff? So, Dharma teachings uh, inviting us to come into a wise relationship with life, wise relationship with ourselves, wise relationship to each other, wise relationship to the world that we interact with, bringing presence, mindful awareness to what we do, and so that presence informs a wise action, a wise interaction, wise speech, wise, wise way of relating to the world. So in the Buddha's day, um, back in, in uh, 400, 500 BC, you know, it was an agrarian culture. And um, I can imagine there were less um, tweets to respond to. <laughs> you know, simpler life that was more in tune with nature and the seasons. But there was, you know, in, in every age there is issues. You know, so they were, they were more dealing with issues around security and safety and hunger and warfare and warring feudal states like in medieval Europe. So today, you know, our challenge is how do we stay present, grounded, centered, open, given the pace of life and given the incre increasing complexity of our digital world. <coughs> so that's the reflection tonight. How do, we, how do we relate with mindful presence to our virtual lives, which seem to grow by year by year? So, and as you're listening to this subject, notice what's happen notice what happens. Notice what happens even as I bring up the subject, being mindful of, you know, technology, computers, Twittering, Facebook, whatever else, gaming you're into. Some of you probably came to Spirit Rock to get away from your email inbox and your phone calls and all of that, right? but it's the world that we live in. 
Is there anybody here who doesn't have to deal with some kind of technology like computers or phones? One person, lucky you. <laughs> so, and even if we don't use it much, it's around us, right? And we may have a lot of views and opinions about it. Is there anybody who doesn't have a view and opinion about, <laughs> like if someone's cell phone go, goes off in the middle of this talk, right? we'll have some views about that, some judgments, some ideas, some, thank God it wasn't mine. I wonder how they got the reception. How did they get reception? <laughs> I need to change servers. What's up with AT&T? So, and I don't, I, you know, I, I barely know anybody who doesn't, you know, have some challenge with feeling overloaded, overwhelmed, particularly around email and around keeping up with the various demands, the various digital demands. I notice it in my own life, in my own practice. I'm a, I'm a writer and a and the challenge of creating space to write and to write poetry um, and to keep out uh, the pull or the onslaught to check emails, check Facebook, whatever it is, you know, that's, that's alluring. You know, if we're faced with a difficult task, what we're going to do? We're going to go to something that's more juicy, right? more yummy, more interesting, more distracting. So, so I, I take it as a practice how to, um, cr- you know, guard uh, time for creativity. And there's a lot of studies being done about how when we use certain kinds of media, it changes the, the composition of the brain in that moment. And so it doesn't support, you know, after, you know, reading 50 emails, it doesn't necessarily support writing poetry you know, or writing a novel. You know, or whatever it is, whatever creative endeavor you want to do. So, and there's a lot of people feel the sense of addiction to it, the compulsion. Oh, I wonder if someone sent an email. I checked 10 minutes ago, but what happened? Did they maybe respond to that last email I sent? You know, we get up in the morning, and what's the first thing we often do? Yeah. Maybe not go to our meditation cushion, but first check our inbox. Yeah. Or last thing at night when we're tired and we've got home from long day at work and there's still that pull, oh, what if somebody's, oh, what if, you know, what is that? You want to get curious about what is that pull? You know, it's a, it's a, for many it's a compulsion, it's an addiction, it's a craving for contact, for connection, for stimulation. There's, uh, when, we, when, we, when we get uh, a new message in our inbox, it stimulates the dopamine, the dopamine receptors. It gives us a little buzz. Oh, something new. Oh, what's that? Oh, it's spam. Okay. <laughs> oh, well. The next one. Oh, more spam. So um, somebody uh, I heard mentioned they were at a concert in England, uh, this band called the Scissor Sisters. And um, they're pretty big, in, certainly in England, know how big they are here. And... Um, during one of the songs, they asked, could everybody turn off their cell phones? Because now you go to concerts, if you notice, and everybody holds up their cell phone, they're recording, they're videoing, they're you know, basically barely present because they're trying to capture it you know, for some reason. You know. Who would want to watch a concert that's been taken on your cell phone where the sound and picture quality is horrible? But anyhow, so that for one song, the whole, the whole auditorium. Turn off their cell phones and listened, and they said they get really tired of you know performing, and people are just not really that present anymore because they're trying to record and capture the moment. A friend of mine was at the Prince concert, Prince concert the other day. Anybody go to the Prince concert? I heard he did the same thing. Didn't he do the same thing? He asked people to stop twittering, stop twittering, and be present. Listen to the music that you paid so much to get in to see. <laughs> So, um, 
So I came across some uh, interesting stats about the, the, the spread of, of this technology. So, and there's, there's both a sort of an excitement and horror at the spread of it. Um, you know, the people at this, confer- at this conference, you know, involved in these, you know, in a few organizations, you know, reach two billion people through their technology, through Google, Facebook, Twitter, and various other things. So it's tremendously influential, both culturally, economically, socially, and also in our own psyches. There's 90 trillion emails sent a couple of years ago. It's probably more than 90 trillion emails. 247 billion emails sent every day. 1.4 billion people using email around the world. No wonder our inboxes are busy. 81% of those emails were spam. Amazing, 81%. That's a lot of trillion. 200 billion spam emails per day. No wonder you don't want to look at your inbox. 1.73 billion internet users worldwide. Twitter now has over 100 million users, tweeting 50 million, 55 million tweets a day. Facebook has more than 500 million users. Spending over, this is very interesting, spending over 700 billion minutes per month on Facebook which is 12 billion hours or 50 million days, which is quite hard to imagine, but maybe true. And there are 200 million people using their phones to access Facebook. 126 million blogs, 30 billion videos watched every year, mostly on YouTube. YouTube serves out a billion videos a day. Amazing. You know, in this five, ten years ago, most of this wasn't happening. We'd go home and we'd check our answer machine. There'd be one message on it, and then we'd switch off. So even when we teach retreats, now the the the. the digital world is creeping in. People, you know, we, we in our retreats in this tradition are silent. And then we have this new phenomena, you know, especially like we teach these team retreats and everyone's tweeting in the hall, you know, with their cell phones, <laughs> checking their emails in their room. And this, this, this design not to unplug, not to miss out. I was giving a talk there's a, a big retreat we teach down in Yucca Valley. Um, every, every April, Jack and many of the Spirit Rock teachers, and I was giving a talk. In the middle of my talk, someone's cell phone went off. Looked around, that was Jack's cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jack. And then several days later, someone's giving a talk, and the cell phone goes off. Oh, it's Jack's cell phone. <laughs> So it's creeping into the meditation world. There's a great cartoon I like. There's a picture of a Zen monastery in the Zendo, lots of monks sitting in a row, and there's a guy on a cell phone saying, I don't think any of this is doing me any good whatsoever. (laughs) It's more thought we think we don't actually get on the phone, but... So what was... And what was inspiring for me about the conference, one of the things that was inspiring about the conference, was um, feeling the, um, the, uh, the real genuineness and, uh, and authenticity around desire to uh, bring more presence into the, work, into the workplace, into, the, into these, these institutions, Google, Facebook, Twitter. There was one person who uh, was the primary funder of Twitter who, when he was speaking, and there was, it was a pretty present crowd for, compared to probably what, it, even though half the people were, you know, had their laptops open and were Twittering and doing all kinds of things while listening to the talks. And one person, one speaker commented, everyone's so present here, it's disturbing. <laughs> and various uh, of these founders of these different companies 
talked about their, their experiences in the startup days. There was one, um, Eric, I forget his last name, who's the founder of uh, the gaming company Zenga. And um, he used to work 18 hours a day, drink about eight to 10 Red Bulls a day, and not drink anything else, and of course got a really bad ulcer. And at some point, you know, crashed, and then um, at some point came across mindfulness and now has a really int deep intention to be mindful, to be present, to slow down, to create space, to create pause, and to bring that culture into the company. And that was true with a lot of different companies. Google has for many years had programs on emotional intelligence, on mindfulness, uh, how to integrate mindfulness into the workplace. Um, there's a lot of meetings there now that they, at the beginning of the meeting, they pause, they have a, they have a mindful pause before the meeting starts. And they, they set an intention, they have clarity around their intention. And um, many of you probably know that the, the, probably one of their most popular or well-known employees, Meng, whose uh, job description is uh, the Jolly Good Fellow. That's his job description, that's his job title, the Jolly Good Fellow of, of Google. And his job description is seven words, awaken people, develop compassion, and bring world peace. And so he's responsible for bringing all these, for the Dalai Lama and all these great people into Google, into to seeding the culture, to bring it, to, to make it more present, more, uh, more mindful. So I found it touching whatever view you might have about the effect that these industries are having on mindfulness and our minds and our well-being, that there's also some awareness of both that responsibility and also a desire to find ways to bring some presence to what they're doing. So, and it was one of the questions that was threaded through the conference and one of the questions that's, that's um, really up for grabs still is, is this technology helpful or harming? So each of us can look to our own experience and say, well, you know, does this, does this, does this technology, my use of it, does it serve me? Or does it harm me in some way? As somebody put it, these tech is this technology weapons of continuous connectivity or weapons of partial attention? Are they weapons of continuous connectivity, which they are, can be, or weapons of partial attention? So, and there's not a simple black and white answer. So we saw what happened in Tunisia and in Egypt, where people had tremendous uh, access and use of uh, Twitter particularly, uh, and the internet to organize. And texting, and that's been seen in, in, in quite a few revolutions. In, in Iran, it was it was evident that people are using this technology to mobilize, to bypass certain <coughs> regulatory systems, so they can organize. So those, those those revolutions may not have happened without this technology. Let's do it here. And um, people were talking at the conference about getting various messages from people in Egypt and Tunisia about. <coughs> how much they're appreciating the support they were, they were feeling from people around the world that they, they got to learn about through, through, those, through those technologies. And then there's the other view that this technology is scattering our attention, it's creating tremendous attention deficit disorder in young children, teenagers, adults. So, and many other um, attention disorders and maybe social disorders. But so I think it's really worth our reflection to explore this for ourselves. What effect is it having on our own mind and hearts? So there's some in the tech world that will say that, that social, social media Facebook and whatnot, Twitter, brought back a more human element to technology. 
more interactive, more social, more connecting. And some would say those very mediums that serve to connect also what allow people to disconnect. So one of the themes of the conference was, was that came from a question from John Kabat-Zinn, who was really the pioneer of mindfulness in society. You know, he's a student of Vipassana practice and Zen practice for many years, and took his work at UMass Medical Center of developing the eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction course, and now it's, that's proliferated out to all corners of society. And he asked the question to one of the funders and people behind Twitter, if you're present, why would you want to tweet about it? If you're present, why would you want to tweet? Tweet, for those of you who don't know what tweeting is, is um, a way of sending a very condensed message through Twitter. Um, 140 um, syllables long. So it's a great question. If you're present, why would you tweet? And of course, John doesn't tweet. So he, had, you know, he admitted that he had no interest or understanding of what that was about. So I was reading somewhere this morning after the Oscars, um, uh, there was an interview with Jennifer Hudson, the singer. Was, uh, what was she? The she won the. Um, made a famous American Idol, right, she won American Idol, got famous. And she was sitting next to Hugh Jackman, which was a big, exciting thing for her. And, uh, and then she was, she was talking about tweeting her friend about how exciting that was and how he was, you know, it was like a running commentary and now he's just winked at me and... <laughs> so and that's, that's the same question. So why would you want to tweet in that moment? Here you are at the Oscars, sitting next to this great movie star, if that's what you're into. And there's a, there's, a, there's a movement out of the moment to communicate that. So, and so some people would judge that, oh, that's just a distraction. They're just checking out. They're, why aren't they just being present in the moment? So the people who are in favor of that kind of connectivity talk about it as a, as a way to connect, as a way to relate, as a way to include, as a way to be, include your social network into your present moment experience. So rather than taking one out of the moment, it's a way of including others into your present moment experience. Lots of frowns in the audience. <laughs> I found this a really interesting perspective because I have a lot of judgment about people who are Twittering at events. <laughs> movies, concerts, talks, and I do have the thought, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> Pay attention, this is a really good concert. <laughs> That's my own bias, and I see my own bias, and when I was hearing this other point of view, I really saw my bias. You know, I, my nephews, who were in their late teens, you know, who were constantly connected, it's, it's all about including, sharing, including their network. And it has a, has a very positive side to it. So this one person put it, uh, extending your hand outside of the room to connect anywhere and to have that connection be handed back to you in the form of another connection, another form, another message. So I'm not going to answer that question, whether that's good or bad, right or wrong, but just to re for you to reflect on. So another question to think about is, what's the most important relationship that we have? So what's your most important relationship? Anyone want to say? Yourself. Yourself. Thank you. Ten out of ten. Gold star to that lady in front. <laughs> what's the most important relationship we have? The first is a relationship to ourselves. 
So, the, this, the, so technology begs the question, since we're Homo sapiens sapiens, which is species that knows and knows that it knows, we're not just species that know, but we also know that we know, we have this metacognitive awareness of ourselves, does our use of technology, social media, whatever, does it serve or distract that relationship with yourself? Does it serve or distract that relationship? Or maybe do both. Does it enhance your connection with the world around you and with yourself? Or do you have a thousand or two thousand Facebook friends and feel lonely? Or ten thousand friends and feel lonely, which is often the case. Or do you use a medium like Skype to stay connected with loved ones who are 6,000 miles away, as I do with my family, and use that as a really beautiful way to connect, to see them live, and to feel really a heartful sweetness in that, rather than talking to some disembodied voice on the phone. So it can go both ways. I was watching uh, something on YouTube yesterday, uh, the English comedian Eddie Izzard. People know Eddie Izzard? (laughs) And he, he was talking about um, he's a transvestite, and so he gets a lot of hassle from kids on the street. And um, so he always walks right up into, into the middle of whoever's teasing him, just stands there. And he said, in the old days, you know, you, you wouldn't just stand there because that kind of looked a bit silly, so you'd smoke. And that was the cool thing to do, to smoke, look cool, just kind of makes you feel like you're doing something, right? And now, of course, nobody smokes, so people, what do they do? We stand around with our cell phones texting, tweeting, whatever, calling, even if the battery's dead, you know, just (laughs) looking important. And so it's, you know, it's interesting, you know, what what, what I noticed with, especially with phones that have every kind of media that we want on them, that there's no moment goes by, no, you know, where we used to have a lot of times of space moments to wait, moments to stand, to be, right? Standing in line, standing in queue at the airport, waiting for a bus, you know, all different, all the moments that we have in between meetings. What do we do? Checking the cell phone, tweeting, emailing, yeah. So, the, again, an, an important question or reflection is not what we're doing, but why we're doing it, what our intention is for all of that. And maybe you're standing in line and you're checking your email because you've got a very urgent email because you've got a friend who's sick and you need to know whether you need to go to hospital or not. Or maybe just because you can't stand being with yourself. You'd much rather check your email, even if it's full of spam, than be with yourself. So. Buddhist teaching always comes back to this important point. What is your intention for anything? It's the, the, goodness, um, the goodness or the lack of goodness is not inherent in the action, but in our relationship to what's happening. This is from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada. He says, we are what we think, all that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We we are what we think, all that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow unshakable. How can a troubled mind understand the way? Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. So to be to be curious about what our intention is for anything, but particularly using social media or any kind of technology. So in terms of uh, these wisdom teachings, the 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 inquiry would be to reflect on whether our intention, whether our action is serving our awakening, serving the, the welfare of others, whether it's, 
whether our actions are contributing to greater happiness, to greater peace, to contentment, to renunciation, to happiness, to joy, or whether they're contributing to selfishness, to greed, to aversion, to hatred, to ignorance. So when, that, when you're sitting at home and you're just minding your own business and then there's that rush to check your media, to check your email, to your phone, your whatever, to see what, where, where's that intention coming from? Is it because you're waiting for an important email from work? Or is it just because you don't want to be there? You, don't want, you, want, you want some distraction, some idle... So if mindfulness practice is concerned with how and where we place our attention, (coughs) then we want to monitor, be present to uh, the effect that technology and our use of it has on that attention. So there's a lot of interesting studies being done about the culture that we live in, which is a, which is you know, in a work culture, there's an expectation that we, we that we should be multitasking. Right? Should we be able to be checking our email, or be in a meeting and checking our email, or checking our email and being on the phone, or whatever it is. There's a lot of pressure to multitask, and the data is really conclusive that multitasking does not serve anything. So. Various studies have shown that when we multitask, so that the, an example for me would be I'd be working on my talk for this evening, um, but I'd want to check my inbox just because I'm bored or because, who knows, something there might be something fun arrive in my inbox. <laughs> so that temptation to, 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 you know, just to zip off. I, I know you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> don't pretend that you don't. <laughs> or you just, oh, I wonder what's happening, you know, in sports channel, you know, you know. It makes it, the technology makes it so easy just to keep flipping, right, back and forth. You're the only one. I'm the only one, thank you. And uh, so the studies show that it takes 25 to 50 percent more time to complete the project we're doing when we multitask like that. Wow. Amazing. So um, 25 to 50% slower to complete the task. And the task that we're doing, say we're, we're, we're doing a writing project, will be of much inferior quality because, of, because our attention's been split. So I've been tracking that because what happens is every time you come back, Say you're writing an article or a proposal or whatever it is, it takes a while to re to re kind of cognize what you're working on, just you know, and to get a sense of the whole. So, um, so good to remember that, and it's a good practice. You know, mindfulness is a practice, and it's also it's partly a practice in discipline. You know, so. So, you know, just in that last meditation, you see how hard it is to be present. Right? It's, not, it's not that suddenly just because we have a lot of technology and computers and social media that our attention suddenly gone wacky, right? You know, it was hard to pay attention to the breath 20 years ago. <laughs> and it was hard to pay attention to the breath 10 years ago. And it's hard to pay attention to the breath now. It may be that it might be harder now, because our attention is so much more practiced at multitasking and being scattered. So we want to be asking ourselves, what am I doing with my attention? The nature of the mind is awareness. We all have this capacity to be aware. We're aware in every moment. Awareness is always aware of something. And the question is, what are we aware of? 
what are we doing with this amazing capacity of attention? Are we always scattering it, diffusing it, or is it you know, to do one thing at a time? And there again, the research is very conclusive. To do one thing at a time is the most productive, most effective, creates the, the, the richest results. And then those who have uh, poor self-regulation are more adversely affected by social media and, and technology in general. So if we already have a tendency to distraction, to being a little ADD-ish, we'll be even more so using technology. John Kabat-Zinn talks about that hunger, that search on, online and email as looking for empty neural calories. They don't really, you know, it's like, it's like um, you know, the fake calories in food that doesn't, it's not really food, it doesn't really satisfy you. It's this kind of similar thing. So that seeking of, um, uh, in like the inbox, yeah, uh, stimulates uh, the same circuitry that that we're seeking for that dopamine hit of satisfaction that comes from real contact, not from an email. So there was a presenter who gave a very uh, uh, interesting presentation called Linda Stone, and she's been uh, renowned for her ability to track the trends of technology and um, she's coined various uh, phrases that are now part of common parlance. One of them is uh, continuous partial attention. That our technological age, we're now in continuous partial attention. Right? I'm giving you my attention, but I'm sort of half checking to see if my email box has got a ping or my text has come through or something. Continuous partial attention. And she also de- developed the phrase conscious computing. Conscious computing, to develop a consciousness when we're on the computer. So, and she gave this overview of the trends. I don't have time to go into them, but basically, she talked about um, how in the f- from, the 40- from the mid-40s to the mid-60s, technology was designed to serve. In the next 20 years, it was designed to create next 20 years from 85 to 2005 it was about connection and then 2005 to 2025 she says the technology now we're in the area of protection filtering screening and privacy that which is true for most people are overloaded there's too much data and we need filtering screening protection privacy how do we make sense of this chaos so it's manageable and that's the I'm happy to hear <laughs> the moving trend in technology is not more is better, but no, the precision and how do we, you know, that's why a lot of people use Twitter, because it's the way that they filter the news media and get very specific uh, information from certain people, from certain sources. So that is the, that's where we're moving into. There was another... Um, flavor of the conference, which was looking to how do we put technology to positive use? And of course, it has numerous positive applications. Um, one, there was a speaker, uh, Jane McGonagall, who um, was talking about the use of gaming and um, how gaming is both you know, an inherent human activity that been, we've been doing playing games for millions of years, and the, 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 the electronic gaming is just the, 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 a new form of that, not some weird anathema that, that today's kids have suddenly gone off the rail, but it's actually it's an, a natural development. And, um, but she talks about the amount of energy and time that goes into some of these games. So I don't know anything about gaming whatsoever, <laughs> except Monopoly. Um, and she talks about one game uh, called World, World of Warcraft, Anybody know that game? So users around the world have logged 50 billion hours. 
playing this game, which is six million years. Isn't that amazing. Six million years of people playing this game continuously. So, and you know, the, 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 the understanding that to, to develop mastery of anything, it takes 10,000 hours, whether it's a violin or uh, sculpting or whatever it is you're into. And so there's a lot of masters of gaming. And so the question is, what is being developed through that mastery? And can that mastery be put to better means? So um, she's been gathering together people from the gaming industry. Um, She's now working with 1,100 game developers who are trying to make games have a more positive emotional impact on the children. So this is very significant shifts. And, and that's why I found that the, the conference inspiring was like there was a really genuine intention there, you know, aside from the profit motive, that this can really be used, just like anything can be used for good or for not. So there's a company that she's involved with and a friend of mine is involved with called Social Chocolate. That they're, um, uh, it's not about chocolate, but they're, um, they're, again, same thing about developing games that have positive uh, results, positive emotions and positive relationships. How, do, how can these games create, enhance relationships? In her studies, three out of four people who, who, who use these games actually prefer um, cooperative versus competitive games. So we often think of gaming as being very antagonistic. And there is one game that they've logged 10 billion kills on this particular game, people around the world. Um, she's also tracked that um, gaming used for veterans with PTSD um, came out statistically higher to help them preve help prevent them from having depression, suicide, and uh, substance abuse. Which I thought very interesting, not what I would have expected. And then there's a company called Hope Lab that um, is developing games for uh, uh, cancer patients, for, for, for children who have cancer. And using that same technology to um, help these children with cancer develop a sense of efficacy, uh, self-efficacy, and um, uh, to understand about their disease and how they can fight it, and having interesting uh, positive results. And they're doing another game where they have kids have this little, it's like a, I don't know, a little device that they hook onto their belt, and it monitors their movement. And the more they move, the more points they get. And then they exchange those points online. And so the idea is to have these kids who are suffering from obesity move. So again, so it's just this, you know, it's easy to have a very blanket view of, you know, this, it's all bad gaming and it's just, you know, checking out and violent and, and that all these things, they're always more complex than, than at first glance. So and lastly, what I want to just say a few things about is, is how do we practice with it with ourselves? And there's many different ways to, to maintain presence, to maintain, uh, to cultivate a sense of mindfulness while we're engaged. You know, many of you probably sit at desks all day and probably have to look at a screen all day. It's not uncommon. So how do we stay in our body? And how do we stay present? One of the most useful things for developing presence is to maintain an embodied presence. So when you're sitting at your desk, can you find a way to stay in your body? Can you feel your feet? Can you feel your belly? Can you feel your breath? Can you take moments? Can you take a minute every hour or something to come back to feel your body? It's so easy to get lost into the screen, right? Into the virtual world and to forget that we have a body here. To be mindful of your intention when you sit down at your desk, when you go to work. To be mindful of your intention when you move to scan the net or your email or to post on Facebook or to tweet. What's the intention? 
Is it, is it serving? Is it positive? Is it going to create well-being for yourself and others? Or is it just self-serving, self-aggrandizing? Is it to generally connect or to escape? Or to feel some control or stimulation, a little rush? Noticing uh, the, the, the proliferating mind, what in Buddhism we call papancha. Papancha is the mind that proliferates. We have a thought, like I mentioned the word email, and suddenly we go back to our desks, and then, oh, I didn't send those three emails, and what's my boss going to think, and oh, God, I did that last yesterday, and I've got a review coming up, and I don't like this job anyway, and, you know, we, we're, and then we're spinning, and we're taking a vacation, and leaving, and going around the world, and... But, we, and, but the, the internet makes it really easy to do that in real time. You know, we have a thought, you know, we're just, you know, we're sending an email and we have a thought about, someone asks us about, you know, can you bring some dessert for the potluck? And then you go, oh, dessert, what shall I make? So you go on cook.com and then... <laughs> You know, and then you go to Italy and cooking school and, you know, Rome and pizza. And, you know, it's just, you know, where's the best pizza in New York, San Francisco? You know, and then it's, it's just, we're just gone. You know, it's like the mind, the human mind, <laughs> writ large, you know, it's hysterical. Except it takes up so much of our time. It's not so funny. So to notice that, to notice when, you know, it's like, what's the intention here? Like, you know, sometimes it's fine just to kind of play around and go and wander off and see where you go and you're on NASA and you're on Hubble site and, you know, and, and it's fun. It's okay. It's, it's harmless. And other times it's like, uh, what's the net effect of doing that? Do I feel really haggard at the end of that? Does it feel like I was avoiding just being with myself or being with my spouse or my children or whatever? So, and then, and then mindfulness with emails, that's a really great place to practice. How do we be mindful in dealing with our emails and thus on our, you know, swamped email boxes? One of the um, folks at the conference just said, he said, I only respond to emails that absolutely require my response. And he added, and I proactively create the life that I want to live. So he's a, he's, he runs many of these companies, funds many of these companies. And he responds only to emails that absolutely requires attention. So he leaves. He probably I can't imagine how many emails he gets, and just leaves them. That's one way to go. Or to pause between emails. Like we, you know, we often get in this kind of like racing run. You know, we have 57 emails when we get to work in the morning, and there's this can't stop till I'm finished. You know, and so we, again we lose ourselves. Or what would it be if we didn't check our emails before we meditate in the morning? You know, again, that, that compulsion to see what's there. To, and we just get up and have a cup of tea and have some quiet time in the morning or before we go to bed. Or to set timers on your computers to go off to tell you to stop, to breathe. To, to There's these applications now that allow you to, um, I'm not quite sure exactly how they work, but they basically screen out everything else on your computer except the thing that you're focusing on. And then to create time when you're not, to, to, to purposefully create and box time that you're not using technology. You know, like, okay, you know, the Sunday I'm just going to take a complete break from any screen time you know, or any phone time. And you just be in the physical present. You know. Or after 6 o'clock or after 10 o'clock or whatever it is that works for you, like what supports you Saying, okay, now, you know, because it, it has a, a powerful impact on our nervous systems. I don't think we've even begun to see what effect it has on the nervous system, except we know, if we're present, that, it, that it's agitating, it's jarring. You know, to be watching a flickering screen at night before we go to bed is not a great thing to, for restful sleep, you know, because it's just, we're overstimulated. So to pay attention to that, to what's supporting the body. So, um, so that's what I had to say this evening. Um, 
there's a lot more that could be said about the subject. And um, I think it's just the beginning of a, uh, a very interesting dialogue and exploration of how do we bring up meditation practice to bear to this, this world of cell phones, of emails, of internet, of Facebook. You know, so when you go home tonight, you know, as you're driving home and maybe you're checking your messages, so <laughs> hopefully you wait till you're you know, home or whatever. You know, or you go online tonight because you want to check your Facebook or you want to check your emails. See if you can bring some presence, right? You stop, sit down, and like just sense yourself. Breathe. Like, what's my intention here? You know, is it for fun? Is it to you know, play, to check out, to get, you know, send an urgent email? You know, and, and notice what happens when the data comes in, emails, spams, Twitters, yeah. Um, you know, it's, you know, this practice is about waking up to all of our lives, and this is a big part of our lives now. You know? And it's certainly it's a practice for me. You know, I've practiced meditation for 25 years and um, you know, have a very complex life with working at Spirit Rock and teaching and on boards and programs and writing and you know, several websites and two Facebook accounts and you know, the whole catastrophe like everybody else. <laughs> And it takes time, it takes energy, it takes resources, and it takes practice how to do that mindfully what, and, and to see what's important. When's it important to let it go? When's it, when, when, when is it useful or relevant to use it, you know, to have a website to, to talk about one's work? You know, I have two websites because I do work in the world that I want people to know about, and I think it's useful work. So there's value to that, and, but it takes time and attention and energy. So, thank you for your attention. May we all be mindful with technology. Um, I want to say one last thing which I didn't say is um, I leave these cards out on the back table. I have a private practice where I work with people one-on-one, supporting people in their lives how to bring presence and mindfulness to their daily life. So if you're interested in that form of coaching work, you can talk to me or email me. Otherwise, um, next week, uh, Leela Wheeler will be here. She's a writer from Boston and a great teacher. And, um, and then Jack and I will both be away teaching the month-long retreat, um, which is part of the two-month meditation which we have up the hill. And so we won't be back till April. Um, but there'll be a whole crew of really great teachers teaching here Monday night. So I will see you in a little while. Take care. Blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.